they started Oculus in 2012. They ended up selling it to Facebook in 2014 for uh, almost $3 billion. And so wow. it felt like another great underdog scrappy. Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the game developers podcast, your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the Game Dev Advice com website so let's kick things off with the new game dev advice hey everybody We've got a special guest today blake j harris he's going to talk about the two books he's written about video games and technology along with uh, one of them being turned into both a documentary and a tv series and all these crazy stories about writing for both of those we had some uh, technical issues but we worked through them and i think you're gonna enjoy it Hey, thanks, Blake, for being on the show. How are you doing? I am good. Thank you for having me on. It's nice to talk to you again. We spoke a couple of years ago about your time in the game industry, so I'm glad yeah. to uh, return the favor and talk about my time on the periphery of the industry. Cool. And, and you've got a lot of stuff going on here. Um, first question I just kind of want to get into is your upcoming documentary, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the Battle to Find a Generation, premiering at South by Southwest. Yeah, so I'm really excited. The film premieres on uh, mid-March. I don't mm-hmm. think mentioned a date yet, but uh, it, it, the project is seven years in the making, so I'm super excited wow. to get it done. I mean, I, I, I was 90% excited when we got into South By just because it's South By, and then 10% excited just because finally this thing was going to be over, um, mm-hmm. which I which just means that, because it was, it was such a long process, it, it actually goes back to 2013. Um, mm-hmm. And at the time, I was starting to think about doing the book and I was talking about the idea with my friend, Jonah Tulis, who I've done a lot of filmmaking stuff with. And he suggested that we also do a documentary in addition to the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember thinking, my initial thought was, wow, even if it was just 90 minutes of old Sega and Nintendo commercials, that would probably be pretty entertaining. <laughs> so if you actually add a story to that, um, you probably can't go wrong. Um, and so we shot most of the interviews back in 2013 and 2014 when I was uh, writing the book. And, mm-hmm. and uh, over the years, it's, uh, you know, because the project, because the documentary is, uh, it's not technically an adaptation of the book, but it's related to the book and the book's being adapted into what was then a movie. And now it's gonna be a TV show with legendary pictures and CBS all access. Um, yeah. It was always like the documentary uh, had, had uh, obligations related to the series. Um, and so now it's awesome that we're finally able to finish it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, as, as frustrating as it has been that it's taken seven years creatively, I couldn't be happier with uh, what Jonah and I have been able to do. Um, mm-hmm. An interesting process to go about, uh, you know, clearly with the actual story, I, I, I took 550 pages to tell it. So to try to tell the story again in 89 minutes is a, it's a different sort of challenge. And then there's also... yeah all sorts of luxuries to being able to tell it this way, uh, particularly the archival footage. Uh, you know, like there's so much, there's so much great footage that has never been seen or, you know, is, is cool on its own, but in the context of this larger story is even more uh, compelling. There's a nostalgia factor that I, that'll be really nice to uh, tie this all together. 
mm-hmm. then we have all the main characters that were featured in the book, like Tom Kalinske and Al Nilsson and Ellen Beth Van Buskirk and Howard Lincoln and Peter Main. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know it's, it's, very, it's been very satisfying to work on. Yeah. So you interviewed all them uh, present day, kind of reflecting back and, and talking about everything and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we spent um, a day or so with each of them and did like, you know, five to eight hour long interviews with all these people um, and and really got to speak mm-hmm. with all the, the key players. Uh, you know, it's always that's always a big concern whenever you're writing something or if you're making a, a film, even though this is my first film that you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're not gonna be able to get all the participants, and you're not gonna be able to have all the sides of the story. And as with the book, I always wish I was able to interview Mr. Arakawa, who had been the yeah. head of Nintendo of America before Howard Lincoln was promoted. But at least we got Howard Lincoln. Um, and he, you know, they were such a dynamic duo, at least he's able to sort of speak for what they were thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's really nice to see all those people. I think it's also just, um, it'll, be, it, it's, it'll be fun too, because these people have such a unique voice. That, that's what made them so fun to write about. Yeah. And I think that sometimes in the book, because they were so playful or so such, they were such good characters. People sometimes thought that I embellished or that I you know, <laughs> dramatized th- those aspects of them, but it was right. actually the opposite. It was actually, I was just really lucky to have these great people. So I'm, I'm glad that people will now get to see, hear them in their own voice and not the Blake Harris voice or what they think is a Blake Harris telling, yeah. be able to hear Tom Kalinske and Howard Lincoln and Peter Main. Yeah. No, that's that, that that's really cool. And I I worked with Al Nielsen mid mid nineties. He was at uh, Viacom New Media. I was at the office, uh, the Dev Studio in Chicago. And um, yeah, there was a lot of lore around him. I, I didn't really know the whole story. I, I just remember his. He would always say the name of the game is the game. You, you know, that was always right. his line. And when I uh, read your book, it was cool to learn more about Al and and, and what he'd done at Sega because I it was just something like. You know, people talked about Sega and things, but it wasn't really clear. There was no internet back then. You could Google somebody or Wikipedia them. So, right. I, I, I mean, really enjoyed looking at them. All of this is like, you know, I think people like you and I, we grew up without the internet. And then also when mm-hmm. we were in our teens or 20s, like had the internet. So we sort of straddled an existence, an adult existence that's like had, you know, understanding of both. But, but that was right. a big thing back then. Like, even just as a consumer, like when I was very young with the NES era, I remember going to KB Toys once with my parents at the mall and they mm. were going to buy my brother and I a game, which, you know, usually we had to get it for like a birthday present or a Hanukkah or something, but they were, they were just going to reward us and we got to choose <laughs> a game. And our entire criteria for choosing the game was just the box. Cause like there was no way to like Google it or be like, right. yeah, yeah. like, you know, so it was just, there was such a gap of information and that, and like a lack of context connecting all these things. So you heard this lore of Al Nilsson, you, even if you had heard things about all these people, just mm-hmm. you know, there's, there wasn't really much that connected them all together into this larger story. Uh, and that's what we have the benefit of doing here, um, which is a historian, you know, as a historian or nonfiction writer, it's always sort of the fun thing is to take all these disparate pieces and put them together in a way that is uh, accessible and understandable. And you see how the pieces fit together. Yeah. And I had a weird, kind of perspective on all this too, because, you know, I was at TurboGrafx at the time, which was the underdog that stayed the underdog and then just never, (laughs) never materialized. But, you know, we were trying to battle head to head with, with Sega, um, especially, and it was just such an uphill battle. And, you know, I I remember one time, like 12 games out for the TurboGrafx and six for the Genesis, you know, so we'd be like, we got twice as many games as the Genesis (laughs) has. But, you know, they had Joe Montana football and we had 
TV sports football where the players were named after the programmers, right? Like right. you want to be Joe the programmer, you want to be Joe Montana, right? So Sega understood that licensing. They they had some great games and um, it was it was tough to fight them. And then when the SNES came out and got traction, it was just uh, it was a two horse race, you know. So it was uh, it was frustrating. But yeah, you used to go to the Toys R Us and you see the kiosks, you know, yep. for both of them and. <laughs> Uh, I was like, I should go sabotage that Genesis one, you know, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, it was interesting times just, it, then it was always arguments too, but 16 bit versus not 16 bit with the, with the turbo and things. But, um, were you surprised? Um, I mean, what one aspect of my book that we, you and I had talked about in the past that like, you know, if I were to do it, there's things I would change. This probably wouldn't be it just because the book is already very long and expansive, but it just kind of shows mm -hmm. these, that these stories that there's always more to them. And like one thing that's not in the book that I find fascinating, but didn't really fit was like the first console war between Sega and TurboGrafx before they even really took on Nintendo. Yeah. Um, and, and so you guys were sort of like the, you know, the trailblazing 16 bit new gen, next gen consoles. Um, were you surprised that, even if you guys had not, you turned out to not be successful in that mm -hmm. way, but were you surprised that Sega was able to make a dent in Nintendo like they were able to? Yeah. Yeah. Because Sega, at least in America, was always kind of the underdog. Yeah. They never, you know, I, I remember researching, you know, I'm, I'm older and I'd gotten out of college and I was looking at video game systems and it was like, I could get a NES or a master system and, and the NES just felt too kitty. And, and I, I bought a master system, you, you know, and I enjoyed I enjoyed the master system, but, I, but it was always Ness was always number one. Right. So, um, yeah, they were always kind of the underdog and then, um, and then Nintendo kind of stalled with, with getting the super Nintendo out. Cause I think they wanted to just keep, you know, pushing the Ness and making their money with that. So when we came out, we thought we had a shot and, um, I, yeah, I was surprised that Sega, you know, was able to turn things around. I remember they had like Buster Douglas, the fighting game and the yeah. boxing game and all these like kind of bombs and stuff. And then, uh, when Kalinsky came on board, it seemed to kind of like get new life and uh, yeah. and really take it to the next level. And we just we just never could. I mean, we had the great hardware. We had the first CD-ROM, the first five player. You know, the same chip would work in both uh, the portable system, which was fantastic, but overpriced, and the, and the home system. But you know, at the end of the day, it's it's about the games, and you can have the greatest hardware in the world. But if you don't have the games people want to play, you're not going to win. And the marketing, which is funny that Allo is yeah. the game is the game because Sega Sega's success was so much about marketing, not even the games. I would argue that mm -hmm. their games weren't as good as their success would dictate, right. but they were so good at marketing. So it's ironic that Al, who was their head of marketing, always goes to that line, which is certainly true to a large degree. And it's good that that's his guiding principle to never mm -hmm. make a game like E.T., but, uh, <laughs> but marketing right. was a big deal and part of Sega's formula. So what kind of feedback back when uh, did you get to the from the book uh, when you initially came out with the book, you know, how was that? Oh, uh, well, I mean, the book, the book was life-changing for me. Um, mm -hmm. My entire twenties from the first, from one week after I graduated college until literally the day of my 30th birthday, uh, I worked at a financial brokerage in Manhattan at Rockefeller center trading commodities for Brazilian clients. So it was my hmm. day job and not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write. Um, and then, uh, you know, selling that book to HarperCollins um, allowed me to quit my day job and write full time. And yeah. uh, then it came out and I was very, very happy with how uh, it was received. <laughs> there there certainly mm -hmm. some people who really didn't like it, but uh, fortunately that was a uh, minority of people. And, uh, and, and I did not expect that, however, what is it, six years later now, almost six years, that people would still be 
talking about the book still be, you know, the book still sells uh, very well every week. I did not expect that. So that, that's been uh-huh. amazing. No, it's cool. You know, it's a marketing term evergreen, right? Because there's, yeah. it, it's, it's not cyclical or just kind of a one thing. It's like there's that history there and people want to know about it. And um, that's great to keep selling. Yeah, I mean that, that was that's like that was the goal. That, but you know, as you know, like the 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 goal and the objective is not always how it turns out. Like, right. I definitely tried to write console wars, and same thing with the documentary too, to do it in a way that it would be appealing to anybody, not just gamers, mm-hmm. not just people from the '90s. But I always think about my grandmother. Like, how is she going to respond to this? How can I get her to care about, you know, six right. bits or to care about Tom Kalinsky? Um, and it is by telling the human story, by finding the universal aspects, by finding the stuff that goes beyond the specific battle. And Yeah. So what's a funny or unusual story discovered writing this book? Um, so there were a lot, which is what part of what made the process so fun. I did f- genuinely feel like every day I'd wake up and there was new things that I was learning, which is certainly mm-hmm. not always the case with everything I've worked on and has made it a little bit hard to find projects that I want to sink my teeth into for years at a time and write books on yeah but you know one of my favorites was i had always been trying to get in touch with hayo nakayama who's the president of sega of japan and plays a big role in the book and obviously in this whole story as the Mm -hmm. patriarch of sega in japan and uh i had not heard back from him until i was in japan for um uh uh, so i was working on uh, promotional videos for sega at the time which is a whole other interesting side story. But while I was out there, I got an email from from someone who claimed to be Nakayama saying that they had heard I was looking to speak with them and that if I still wanted to, to be waiting at my hotel room on Friday at like two o'clock or something. And I, of course, did wait there. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, greeted by two gentlemen who uh, spent a couple of hours uh, asking me questions. And I guess I passed their test and they brought me over to Nakayama's residence, which is a very beautiful home. And then I spoke with Nakayama-san for uh, a few hours, and it was uh, it was everything that he was everything I hoped he would be. Uh, yeah, he was uh, a character in some ways. Also, just you know, he's a larger than life character. Also, a very smart guy, very interesting guy. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, that, that's always sort of the more fun parts for me is like when you know I'm hearing about all these people because I'm asking them questions about characters, other people that are part of the story. So mm-hmm. when I finally meet the ones that I hadn't been in touch with, it's always interesting to see how what I had heard of them, um, you know, whether that seems to, uh, if I had the right impression of them and sort of see right. things from their perspective. Yeah, there was a whole, like, I think it was towards the beginning of the book where where Tom got picked up uh, in Japan with like some stretch black limo and, and he was yeah. in there drinking whiskey and stuff yeah. like that. Or yeah, like, well, I mean, that's like... The, the 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 book actually starts because with a story that Tom told me, which is like I remember him telling me the story, and that was kind of what clinched that I wanted to spend my next few years working on this book. It was him in Hawaii on vacation, unrelated to anything with Sega, because he he was in the video game industry at the time. He was actually like between jobs and sort of looking for a new job, and mm-hmm. then he uh, was approached on the beach by Hayao Nakayama, the guy I was just talking about. Yeah, who was on the beach in a suit, which is unusual. <laughs> and he says to Tom, you know, like Tom's like, what the heck are you doing here? Guy in a suit. And he says, I'm looking for you. I want you to come with me to Japan. I want to show uh-huh. you the 16-bit technology and I want you to run Sega. And uh, 
Yeah, so that also gets a little bit to what I was saying earlier. That's not, yeah. That kind of sounds like a dramatized story that I could see a screenwriter like making up, or that someone might think I really embellished. But that was mm-hmm. the actual story, and it was right. you know amazing. And I was very lucky that I had this great material to work with. Yeah, I, I mean, it just writes itself. When you hear that, you're just like, "What?" And he's in a suit in Hawaii, yeah. <laughs> stalking him, and because yeah, Tom was there with his family on vacation, yeah. and then yeah. the dude, you know, it's like, okay, I yeah, I guess I can't say no. Yeah. Um, so what about, um, besides the documentaries, anything you can talk about with the uh, TV series? That's CBS uh, All Access, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, unfortunately, there's not that much I can talk about at this time. They mm-hmm. are, uh, it's the same, you know, CBS All Access is the one who's going to be distributing the documentary and who we've obviously been working with for the past year. Um, they've yeah. been a great partner. And they're also developing the scripted TV series, which is being directed by Jordan Voigt Roberts and uh, written by Mike Rosolio. We have a pilot script that is the best script I've ever read. Uh, I get <laughs> biased, but I actually, I'm usually very hard on scripts because I, there's a reason I don't screenwrite anymore and I prefer writing prose. But uh, Mike Rosolio did an awesome job. And uh, I look forward to providing an update on that when I can. But uh, knock on wood, things are moving along, and, and I'm very happy with that as well. You know, it's, it's kind of I, this I, this story has become very personal to me between telling yeah. it as a book and between telling it as a documentary, and in, in between the you know between both of them, putting like four or five years of my life into it. So uh, mm-hmm. I was a little nervous reading this screenplay because I you know I didn't yeah. know how it would match up to my vision and I do feel a sense of ownership with how the story was told and then also at the same time there's real people involved that I know and oftentimes care about but uh Mike did an amazing job so uh I'm feeling good about things there and I again I look forward to providing an update when I can yeah and uh right because you, you could have been like wow the screen this this yeah you know didn't capture what i was trying to do or there's too much embellishment or something so i'm I'm sure yeah it's like you just said like you know what i've found over the past eight years as i've gone as i've gone from trading commodities to nonfiction writing uh and storytelling Mm is you know truth really is so often stranger than fiction and so (laughs) it would have been almost like a bummer to me if a screenwriter sensationalized it because they didn't need to, because the actual story is so interesting. So I was really glad that Mike leaned into that and that he, he always asked me questions about, you know, like he wants to know what actually happened. He's not just taking these characters Mm -hmm. and using them as puppets to tell whatever story he wants to tell. Um, But yeah, the truth really is stranger than fiction. Uh, Yeah. So now transitioning to your second book, the history of the future Oculus Facebook and the revolution that swept virtual reality. What was that like? Um, it's a big book too. A lot of research, a lot of time. How, how did that go? Uh, it went very weirdly. Um, I, don't, I don't know <laughs> if you've read the book or if you're familiar with the story. I, no, I downloaded it. I, I actually I have it on Audible. So it, it's it, I downloaded it yesterday. So uh, yeah. Well, the good news is that like console wars, I hopefully wrote it in an evergreen way. So there's no urgency on your end to uh, listen to it. It'll mm-hmm. be relevant, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so... The like you said earlier, the subtitle of the book of Console Wars is uh, Sega Nintendo: The Battle to Find a Generation. And there's you know some tongue in cheekness to the battle to find a generation part, but also it really did. Yeah. You know the Sega Nintendo battle is something that really meant a lot to a lot of people my age who grew up in the 80s and the 90s who have such fond memories and so many memories associated with that. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to find a topic that I thought would have a similar cultural resonance and uh, you know a sort of a uh, an overlap of the Venn diagram between culture and gaming and Hollywood and technology and big personalities. And mm-hmm. so uh, I was really intrigued by Oculus, um, which had started in 
2012 and also yeah. had a similar great, you know, chapter one that just sort of seemed to immediately reveal itself to me, which is, you know, back in 2012, Palmer Lucky, who was a 19 year old kid at the time, was uh, working away in a trailer uh, in Long Beach, California, mm. and sort of like a mad scientist. And he created this headset called the Oculus Rift, a prototype. And uh... hey, hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please go to patreon.com backslash game dev advice. We'd love to see if you can support the show and help uh, new episodes keep coming out. That's patreon.com backslash game dev advice. Thanks. It ended up, you know, he ended up starting a company with the help of a few other people and uh, also getting a lot of publicity due to uh, a fortuitous connection and support from John Carmack. And, uh, ah, right. you know, they started Oculus in 2012. They ended up selling it to Facebook in 2014 for uh, almost $3 billion. And so wow. it felt like another great underdog scrappy story, which it is, I should say, like that proved to be true. But yeah. um, I started working on the book in 2015 and the book came out earlier this or last year. It came out in 2019. And mm -hmm. uh, by the time the book came out, Palmer Lucky had been fired from Facebook for reasons that had nothing to do with virtual reality or technology, but had to do with mm -hmm. politics and his political support for Donald Trump, uh, who is a candidate, who is then a candidate and mm -hmm. eventually a president who I personally really dislike, but I also mm -hmm. think everybody in the country has the right to support whatever candidate they want, especially in yeah. a two-party system. And mm -hmm. so I was pretty... Uh, devoted to trying to tell a fair story and to try to get the full story, um, which was hard because uh, there was some um, chicanery involved and Mark Zuckerberg coercing Palmer to lie about his politics and, wow. you know, a whole scandal. Basically, it's, so I mentioned all that just because the, the process was not at all like I expected. It delved into a lot of territories that I had not expected to write about, nor did I have much interest in writing about, but I felt mm -hmm. that it was my responsibility to see the story through to the end. And that's what I did. And it was um, exhausting and grueling. But I do think that what resulted was a very important book and a look at our times, especially with the control mm -hmm. that companies like Facebook and yeah. other yeah. big Silicon Valley companies have. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting to see the inner workings there and, uh, and like some of the hypocrisies. And, and uh, it personally made me very concerned about Facebook. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff, you know, about the... Uh, the ads right now and and how they're not monitored and there's just blatant stuff that's you know ads that are running on facebook that people take as truth and all this right there is a lot of crazy stuff and then um yeah but it's cool that you followed where it went right you, you know you chased the story down and you didn't go in there with like a narrative or a direction and you you try to frame it yeah I in that way that. You know? it was very hard and it was also very uh it was very helpful to me because i like i said i'm someone who really does not uh, care for Donald Trump, and I found it uh, you know, depressing that he won the presidency, and uh, you know, disappointing that half the country or you know half of my fellow countrymen would vote for him. But I also, mm -hmm. by following the story at the end, at least understand a lot more of where they're coming from, and it forced me to be much more tolerant of other people's views and to realize that it's not as much of a good and bad. Even even though Don Trump himself is very objectionable to me that, you know, people have valid reasons for voting him and, and things that I didn't really think that much about. So I guess the, it's a mm -hmm. long way of saying that it forced me to be more tolerant and more thoughtful and also really uh, caused me to lose a lot of trust in the media, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. 
Like, uh, you know, the, 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 what happened with Palmer was so misreported. And as one of the few people who actually, you know, I had access to all the players involved, like Palmer and some of the other participants, and I knew what had really happened. And mm-hmm. it was troubling to see how inaccurately it was reported. And then it was even more troubling that when I reached out to these people as a fellow journalist, they didn't really care what I had to say because it didn't fit their narrative. Which hmm. was like not what you want to hear from fellow journalists. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's like, Tell me what you, information you have. Don't don't try yeah. to fit in the box. Yeah. What about researching this? Um, were you traveling a lot, or like what was different between this book versus Council Wars uh, in terms of the research, or, or how did you? It's a good question. Uh, yeah. I mean, I it was it was pretty different because, like I said, Council Wars is my first experience uh, reporting and interviewing people, so I learned a lot about. I, I guess I just got a lot better. I should say. Uh, yeah. I also. Access was, uh, it took a very, very long time to get the access I wanted, but in general, it was much easier for me to get interviews with people than it was with consulars, because back then I was just a commodities broker reaching out to Tom Kalinske or Al Nelson and saying, hey, do you have time to talk to this guy with the dream? And fortunately, mm-hmm. those are both help, people who are very helpful to uh, journalists of all stripes. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, whereas with this book, at least I had something under my belt to say, here, look, I, I've written a book, a lot of people read it and Many seem to like it. You know, it's yeah. easier to get people's time, um, right. even Street though. Street cred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I also just you know I was I was able to think. It helped me think about writing the book better. You know, I I, I like I sort of like to operate for for as long as possible. I like to not have any specific plan for the story. I like to just collect mm-hmm. as many ingredients as I can and then start cooking the meal. And I guess knowing that I'd done it before gave me the confidence that I could do that for even longer this time, which turned out to be three and a half years. I mean, I guess I started writing hmm. at some point. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it was less traveling and more just staying in touch with people very frequently by text message or Facebook messenger or email. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas with console words, I generally did. I did a lot of interviews, but there were but the dialogues sort of didn't continue from there. Whereas with the more re- recent book, I felt like it was just a, almost like an ongoing interview with all, with so many of these different people. And that yeah. was also, you know, that I was able to do that because I had a little more credibility, but also it was interesting because console wars, when I started writing it in 2012, it was a story that had already happened in the nineties, 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So I kind of knew the beginning, middle and end roughly when I started, whereas with this yeah. Oculus, was riding high when I started and they were coming out with their first product in March, 2016. And so it was like telling the story in real time. So it was much more valuable to me to have those relationships and to actually get the real time reactions from the executives as things were happening, as opposed to how they remembered it years later. Yeah. Yeah. Two different contexts, right? Yeah. What, what about like a funny or unusual story from, from this book? Like what's something stands out that it was like, wow. Again, it's like, there's, there's so much stuff that, that really <laughs> surprised me. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to think of like, what's the best one to tell for people who aren't familiar with the book. I mean, Palmer Lucky is a character. So th- there's, there's a lot of great Palmer stories. Uh, uh-huh. Like I said, you know, he's, he's also a, an eccentric guy. He's, uh, he, he was living in this trailer at the beginning of the book. I, I guess the, the most interesting thing to me was just, the, the most interesting thing to me was with this book, unlike the other book, I was able to um, get access to over 25,000 emails by the end of it all. And wow. so in a way that I could never do with Council Wars, because there, was there wasn't really email for most of that story. And then also I didn't have mm-hmm. access to whatever internal system they had. 
I was able to verify, I was able to, after I had a sense of the story, I had interviewed everyone for about a year, I was, ended up getting these emails and I was able to go back and see the whole story evolve just from all their interactions and seeing the start hmm. of the company that way. Yeah. So it was very interesting to see what they remembered correctly and incorrectly and maybe why they remembered things differently to benefit themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I will say that like that was also really impressed me about Palmer because he is a controversial, polarizing figure. He does mm. sort of revel in that a little bit, but I, but as a journalist, he's kind of a, um, a a dream subject because he does remember things accurately and like it, yeah. <laughs> everything he said turned out to be true for better or for worse. Um, and and I it was nice to see that confirmed mm. after seeing all these emails. Yeah, that's wild that you had access to the, you know, that level of emails and you could verify things and, um, yeah. and, and it shows you did your homework, right? That uh, you really dug into this and made it your life just trying to make sure yeah. all this stuff was accurate. And, and that was a big part of it too, because again, Council Wars was a story that happened 20 years ago. There's a lot of recreated dialogue in that book that is in the spirit of the conversation, but it's obviously not exactly word for word. Whereas, mm-hmm. and, and so, and, and I worked with the subjects in Council Wars to try to make that dialogue as accurate as possible and as authentic as possible. But with this book, because of how poorly the media reported on Palmer, I felt like I needed to raise my game and be yeah. even more accurate and not even have things that were, quote, like in the spirit of a conversation, but actually make sure that these were like verbatim quotes and everything in the book. I had a record of these people saying, because I didn't want to mm-hmm. be accused of being the, you know, sort of what I was ultimately criticizing about the reporting. Um, right. And so having those emails was one thing that really helped me have that confidence and make sure that I not only knew what was, you know, was able to write what was in the book, but I also knew maybe things I didn't know, like things that I would have looked foolish to not realize were part of the context. So it, it gave me a lot of confidence. So in terms of, um, you know, technology, you've got a pretty good perspective on that. Like, what are you excited about around, you know, AR, VR, mixed reality platforms? Like, and what concerns you also about those platforms? Yeah, it's a good question. I definitely lost some of my excitement just because of how things played out at the end of the Oculus story. You know, my interest hmm. is always more, from a writing perspective, my interest is always more of the people, the human story. And so seeing how a human like Palmer was treated and seeing how things ended for his co-founders, you know, none of which are at Facebook anymore because, of, mm-hmm. you know, the... the clearly weren't happy there or Facebook wasn't happy with them did sort of sour my opinion on VR, which it probably shouldn't feel, you know, the average person shouldn't feel that way because VR is still amazing and the Oculus quest is awesome. But, but uh, but I am really, uh, I, I I started working. I, I wanted to write the book because I felt VR was going to be generation defining or, you know, have a big cultural resonance. And I still feel that way. Yeah. Uh, Whether it's AR, you know, sort of VR, um, I guess I'm really excited and hopeful for um, having having seen companies do what I would consider the wrong thing, like Facebook in particular, um, or, mm-hmm. or companies involved that I don't necessarily trust, like Facebook. Uh, I'm very eager to see two companies that I uh, have more admiration for and uh, get into it, which is Nintendo and Apple. Um, you know, mm-hmm. It remains to be seen when and if either of those companies will really jump into the mixed reality space in a big way. But I love that Nintendo is doing, you know, they had the, the, the VR Labo stuff, which wasn't that great, but at least they were getting in there. They had the VR Mario Kart stuff, which is great. And then they just have like the, the IP that I think it's going to take to make VR really take off in the same way that, you know, like the Pokemon um, augmented reality experience, right. is, which is a, you know, it's kind of AR or let, let's say it is AR. Um, yeah. That was what made that so 
popular was not just the technology. It was the IP. It was having the Pokemon mm-hmm. brand. Um, right, so, right. So, have, so I'd love to see Nintendo uh, be more a part of this because I think that they have some of the greatest IP. Um, and then Apple has done such a great job of making seemingly sci-fi technology mainstream, have mainstream mm-hmm. appeal. So I'm really eager to see what they do with um, AR or VR. What, yeah. what are you excited for in that space? Um, you know, I, I like the quest myself because the, the low barrier of entry, right? Like yeah. you just turn it on, you put it on, um, you know, the HTC Vive, you got that laptop and then something doesn't work and you plug it back in and right. it works and it just feels very hobbyist to me yep. and it's kind of frustrating, but the quest, you know, you just throw it on, um, you can get in the experience, you know, quickly with the low friction point. Yep. Um, and all the other kind of unique stuff, like a, a buddy of mine, Andrea is a company that's getting into virtual reality you know, meditation, right? So it's uh, third eye yeah. studios or something where, you know, you can go to this environment and there'll be like a live thing and you can meet people and granted when you meditate, your eyes are closed, but the idea that um, you can experience this stuff and maybe, maybe you can't physically, but um, being able to meditate in VR and like interact with other people um, is, is kind of cool. So like, you know, what can you do with this technology? You know, where, where can you do different stuff? Um, you know, besides a Pokemon or things like that. Right. Um, it, it's just cool to see how it's evolving, you know? Yeah. And that was always what fascinated me as uh, the beyond gaming aspect, which is also what interested Facebook, the, you know, the social component. But I liked the idea of the medical uses and the mm-hmm. uh, meditation or, you know, entertainment uses or the, you know, the being able for me to, my, my brother lives 2000 miles away. So being able to do something with him, that's so we're together virtually, even if we're not physically together, I was mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I do think the quest, despite my misgivings about Facebook, the quest is great. And I, and I, I, this is speculative on my part, but, but I do believe that all the people who ended up, you know, who had started Oculus and ended up either being fired or leaving because they didn't like Facebook, I think they would all do it again because they did it because, because part of the reason for selling to Facebook was that it led to something like the quest. It led to a company willing, being willing to put in the billions of dollars, yeah. make a few hundred dollar product that had the, you know, the low friction points that you're talking about and the great experience for an afford- somewhat affordable price. Yeah. It, the things that kind of scare me about that a little bit though too, is I, I hear about, um, you know, like your movements uh, and, you know, it captures your movements and is, is that data then going to be potentially, uh, who knows if it's true or not, but like repurposed and like, you know, sold to companies and things like that, you know, with like your gait and how you move. And all right. the things around. Yeah, uh, I mean that, that's movement. really like VR is an incredibly cool technology. It's also the most intrusive technology that you can imagine. It's um, it, it is in order to deliver what you're seeing and make you feel like the world is moving with you virtually. It has to um, you know scan your body movements and also scan the environment around you, which means that mm-hmm. that you're basically have you're you're putting cameras in your home and having yeah. this 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 hardware track your movements, um, yeah. which sounds. Um, terrifying if you know Facebook is not being diligent with keeping that information or or using it for the purposes they say. And even though they right. might say the right things, they've lost a lot of credibility over the past few years. And their mm-hmm. typical, you know, typically what happens is either that data is misappropriated or it's being used for things that they're lying about, and then they just apologize years later when it's already too late. So, yeah, like, I'm pretty conflicted about it. But as a piece of technology, it's very very cool. Are there any games that you're playing right now or anything that you're excited about um, in the gaming space or technology space? Um, I, I, I've not had much time to do stuff <laughs> lately. 
Yeah. Especially as we're in crunch now to finish up this documentary for South by, which is uh, starts in mid March. But, mm-hmm. but in general, like I usually every night before I go to bed, I try to play the, I, my Nintendo switch. That's like how to unwind. And it usually is retro games. It's usually, uh, I really like the Zelda game. So I usually play that on like the Nintendo online, you know, the virtual NES. Yeah. Um, but then I also played the, the Link's Awakening, the 3d version that, um, they had on the Switch. So I, I'm usually playing Switch mm-hmm. stuff, or I was playing Cuphead recently. Um, you know, I never really got into first-person shooters, so a lot of what's popular on, uh, you know, the major consoles is not stuff that I spend a lot of time doing, and Nintendo still makes fun platformers, which are kind of where my heart is still at. Yeah, and it, it is such a, it is a great system. It's yeah. just, it just feels good in your hands, and it, yeah. uh, you know, you can download games quickly, and, um, it seems like Nintendo hits that out of the park every other one. You, you, yeah. you know, it's like they, they have a home run and then they they strike out and they have a home run. You, you know, you just yeah. you kind of almost track it that way with, <laughs> with, their, with their hardware. It's like, yep. virtual boy, give me a headache. What are you guys thinking? <laughs> you know, it's like way too early for that. Yep. Um, so have you seen the Sonic movie? Um, I have, and it's amazing. I I encourage everyone to see it. I'm, uh, I was very yeah. nervous about it over the past mm-hmm. few months, as I think most people were. Um, but it was amazing. I thought that, that Jim Carrey was awesome. And I thought Ben Schwartz played a perfect Sonic. I, I was really surprised by how much I loved it. Yeah. It, it kind of got off to some shaky ground there where the the initial uh, images were out and they kind of went back and retooled it. And it was like, uh Oh, is this thing going to blow up or is it going to, is it going to pan out? And it sounds like all the stuff I'm seeing online is responsive and uh, very positive. So it's great. Yeah. I also think it's a really good success story for listening to your audience. Uh, you know, I see so much nowadays mm-hmm. where not just in the gaming space, but, but companies put out products or tease products and then there's um, a very strong reaction to it. And I feel like the, the fans who are complaining are mm-hmm. often demonized by the press. Like, uh, yeah. you know, this is certainly not a parallel example, but some of the stuff with Star Wars where it's almost like they're saying, no, the fans are wrong. And then that's fine if creatively you don't want to appeal to that base or if that you think that's just a small segment of the audience. But but I do think there's an important I think there's an importance in listening to your audience. Um doesn't mean you have to act on what you're hearing, but I do think it's important to know what your audience is thinking, what your most devoted people in the audience are thinking. And then in the mm-hmm. case of Sonic, they listened to people who were upset. I I mean I wasn't upset, but I was definitely concerned. And they actually made it better. And they I don't think they would have had as great of a they definitely wouldn't have had as great of a movie if they hadn't, you know, gotten that terrible feed the the strong feedback and changed it. Yeah. And again, you give them credit for doing that instead of just being like, Yeah, well, what do you guys know? This is this is yeah. the movie we're making. <laughs> Too bad. Is there anything um I should have asked you about but didn't? The, nothing that you should have asked me about, but but one thing that I probably would want to say before we finish up is just mm-hmm. um, how much how much how much I want there to be more um, behind the scenes looks at the history of video games, sort of the kind of work that I yeah. do, uh, which I'm not alone in doing. You know, Jason Schreier has a very good book, and David mm-hmm. Kushner, you know, his book, uh, uh, David Kushner's book, Masters of Doom, and his uh, and he wrote Jack. You know, there are people right. doing similar long form. In, in Josh, uh, Josh Way, uh, you're familiar with Insert Coin, right? Of course. Yeah. Josh is a yeah. friend where he's also going to be premiering his film at South. Yeah. We're doing a panel and, together. Um, yeah. Like his, that, what he, his documentary is awesome. It's about Midway's arc, Midway and the arcade games that they made in the 90s, like Mortal Kombat mm-hmm. and NBA Jam. 
Yeah. And, and I just wish that there was more of that. And I know, I understand, uh, I know that there, why there's not, because I mean, I faced a lot of resistance from publishers and maybe from film. You know, it's, 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 it's tough because people, there's this perception that video game books or movies don't sell or that they don't translate, which I think mm -hmm. is um, just not true or it doesn't have to be true. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I like the, what you're doing as a podcast and, uh, if, you know, if there's anyone out there that has stories to tell, um, you know, and wants some help trying to write a book or just get it out there, I am always happy to spend time talking to those people to try to figure out a way to help them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't always work out, but, but, I, but I, I write this stuff because this is the kind of stuff I want to read. So yeah. if there's anything I can do to help someone listening, you know, feel free to reach out. Yeah, and speaking of that, like, how can people find you online? Uh, your website, Twitter, like, what's the best way for people oh, yeah. to uh, follow you and get in touch with you? Twitter is probably the best way. I'm uh, at Blake J Harris NYC. Mm -hmm. I, I'm usually pretty good about responding. Maybe not for the, not maybe not until after South by Southwest, but um, in general, I'm pretty good. There's also I have a website, BlakeJHarris.com, and there's an email address on there that I check, you know, or things get mm -hmm. sent to me pretty regularly. So I, I think I'm generally pretty accessible. For anyone yeah. who wants to find me to say good things or bad things or share ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and thanks. Thanks for the feedback on the show. And um, yeah, excited to hear how it goes with, with you and Josh at South by Southwest. I hope the movies, you know, kind of help, I don't know, renaissance is the right word, but, you know, kind of validate the fact that you, there are these great stories and it's not just about the technology. It's about the humans, right? It's, it's right. about the, the stories, you know, because with, with Josh's um, movie, I was not there at the time. I, I always there kind of for the hangover period where I joined at 2000. Mm -hmm. So I missed that wild period, but I know all those people and um, there are fascinating stories and there's, so it's much more than just games. It's like the human element and, and the, the stories that went into the making of them that yep. you, you know, like you'd said, uh, truth is stranger than yeah. fiction, right? Like, you're like, what people really did that or said that, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, that can't be real, but but it is, and that makes for great, you know, content, right? So yep. great entertainment, and it's it's not just about um, pushing pixels and talking about graphics and CPUs and GPUs and stuff like that. Yep. Well, thank you for being a guest on the show here today. I, I think this has been fantastic, and wish you the best of luck at uh, South by Southwest there. Thanks, John. Uh, hopefully, I'll be back on the show at some point after and after you've seen the movie, and we could talk about it in greater detail. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I'm actually going to be at GDC uh, overlaps right at the same right. time as South by Southwest. So, but yeah, we'll have to do a follow up after movies out and, and uh, yeah, maybe even after the uh, TV series is out too, because I'm Sounds excited good. to check that out. So, well, thank you, Blake, and have a great day. You too. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Go to the website at gamedevadvice.com and you can find the show notes along with show notes for all the other episodes. Please also check out the new Patreon page at patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Have a lot of options up there for how you can support the show. Again, that's patreon.com backslash gamedevadvice. Thanks again for listening and being part of the show. Take care. Bye-bye.